It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In an instant, the stuff of everyday life, doctor's appointments, taking kids to the school, going to work, were suddenly replaced in Ukraine by suffering and mayhem, the shock and trauma of all those individual lives changing so suddenly is is hard to imagine. You know, I was looking at one of those maps showing the state of the war in Ukraine the other day. And, you know, there's the arrows and the zones controlled by Russia. And there's other big arrows showing flows of refugees out of Ukraine and into Poland. And it for a second, I felt like I was back in high school watching the old documentary Why We Fight movies from World War II, showing the movements of troops and forces in Europe during that war. And I don't think any of us ever thought we'd be looking at a map like this of Europe today or seeing the images of the full-scale, indiscriminate warfare and attacks on cities and civilians. There's so much about this. It's making us take a whole new look at how we think the world works. Let's get into it. Lessons for Democracy and Surprises of War, Robert Kagan, Jane Litvinenko, plus some thoughts from us. So I actually believe in the long run, we will come out of this. Unfortunately, though, the long run may be longer than we want, and we may be in this for 20 years now. Had the West stood up against the torture of protesters in Belarus, Russia would not have been able to put tanks there today. The same tanks that are now threatening Kiev, the same troops that have now entered through Belarus to Ukraine, and the same troops that are threatening the homes of people I love. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Last week's show was a history lesson about the recent changes in Ukraine before the war started. Today we look at some of the impacts of the early days of the invasion. And we share short extracts from two interviews published in the past few days by companion podcasts on the Democracy Group Network. We're members on this show, and along with others, uh, we make podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. 
Yeah, it's really great being part of the Democracy Group Network. And every so often we dip into some of the work they're doing and share it with you, our listeners. So our first guest today is Robert Kagan, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a contributing columnist for The Washington Post. He spoke with podcast producer Jenna Spinelli. Robert Kagan begins with some reflections about the state of global democracy. It's important to remember, as you look at the rest of the world, that democracy is a fragile institution. It is the rarest form of government historically, even though we take it for granted and we think it's the, it's, it's the end point of human development, etc. And there has been widespread democracy in the world, but that's a very aberrant situation. Unfortunately, I think we are, because we're all children of the Enlightenment, we believe in, in that history moves in one direction, you know, ever upward, maybe with pitfalls, stumbles here and there, but there's such a thing as progress. But I, I don't think history actually supports that. <laughs> and I think what we have taken as progress has just been, as I say, a, a historical aberration made possible by the fact that the country that believes in democracy also happens to be the strongest country in the world. So not shockingly, democracy has spread during that period. But I mean, the link obviously for me is an America that is not a democracy is not the same America and its effect on the world will not be the same. And we saw some glimmerings of that during the Trump years. I mean, Trump um, was allied with the world's dictators when he was in, in power, effectively. We all know what his attitudes towards Putin was. In, in the European fight, he is on the populist side. He's on the side of Hungary and Viktor Orban. He's on the side of the most right-wing populist movements in every country in Europe. And, and those were his allies. And so America could be uh, the great supporter of global autocracy if it, if it ceases to be a democracy. So, I mean, what happens in the United States is un, uh, unfortunately of, of real global and historical significance. So ultimately it all ties together. The interesting thing for me now, what is the effect on the current international crisis on American domestic politics? Yeah. It's impossible, it's very difficult to predict, but we there are historical analogies that I think are relevant here, which is if you go back to the 1930s and even as late as 1938, 39, and 40, uh, you had a very strong illiberal faction in America. It wasn't just the America First crowd. It was the Republican Party to some extent uh, saw Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt as the enemy, that he was a communist and he was a socialist. And they actually were fairly sympathetic to the fascist governments because they were anti-communist. And so uh, there was, a, in the same way that there is today, an affinity between American domestic conservatives and international fascism. So, you know, today we, we see the same thing. We saw it then and we saw it now. Now, the effect of World War II, which was immediately cast as a war between democracy and totalitarianism, of one kind or another, in a way sort of forced Americans to like take their own democracy more seriously. And as scholars have written, 
one impact of the Cold War was that Americans felt that they needed to do a better job of like living up to the principles that they claimed to be standing up for internationally. And some, at least some element of the civil rights movement was an outgrowth of the Cold War competition because the Soviet Union was constantly pointing to the fact that the United States had a racist system. So what kind of democracy? So it's not inconceivable that depending on what happens, the world of crisis is being depicted largely as a democracy versus autocracy struggle in which the United States is supposed to be on the side of the democracies. So I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful a little bit that this will have some effect on Americans' commitment to democracy at home. And the only right. thing, and I'll stop with this, but it's interesting to see how divided the Republican Party is right now even on the issue of Ukraine and Putin. But the majority of Republicans, and certainly the overwhelming majority of elected Republicans, are anti-Putin, pro-NATO, pro-democracy. And I, I just hope that that kind of rubs off on other Republicans as we go forward. Right. And as we wrap things up and think about the sort of dual mission or, or task that America has with both, you know, shoring up democracy and support for democracy here at home, while also maintaining our standing on the world stage as the world's most powerful democracy. The most cynical version of this question is, is are we up to the task of, yeah. of doing both? Are we up to it? Yes, we're up to it. And, and but it's really are we up to it psychologically is in a way the bigger question. But I do, I, I do think people need to remember that if you combine the overall power and GDP, not only of the United States, but of our allies around the world from Japan and Korea and Australia uh, and de facto in this situation, India on one side to the European powers on the other, our power is significantly greater than Russia's and China's combined. By the way, which was also true before World War II, I mean, the United States and its putative allies before World War II were stronger than Germany and Japan. It was just, when are you going to use the power? <laughs> was the only question. So I actually believe in the long run, we will come out of this. Unfortunately, though, the long run may be longer than we want. And we may be in this for 20 years now. We blew our chance to hold on to this world. This is not aimed at you, but people of your generation, others have been saying that these last 30 years have been the biggest disaster in American foreign policy. We're going to look back on these last 30 years as the halcyon moment, relatively speaking, compared to what we're about to go into. It is the challenge, I will say, uh, unfortunately, more of your generation than of mine now to see us through this latest set of crises the only thing I would say is look to our past, uh, as they say in the in the in the markets. Uh, past performance is no predictor of future uh, performance, but our past performance is yes. We wait too long, we let things get out of hand, and then we bring our considerable power to bear uh, to try to uh, improve the situation that we've allowed to collapse. And I think that's kind of where we are now. We are absolutely capable of doing it, but we need to understand that this is a long-term challenge that we need to take very seriously. 
Robert Kagan speaking with Jenna Spinelli, who, by the way, is a millennial herself and a a lot younger than you or I, Jim, or for that matter, Robert. Our next interview comes from the podcast Democracy in Danger. It's with Jane Litvinenko. She's an award-winning reporter in the field of disinformation and online investigations. She recently joined the Technology and Social Change Project at the Shorenstein Center at Harvard University as a senior research fellow. Jane spoke with Siva Vadyanathan first about her view of Vladimir Putin. You know, um, I would push back on the characterization that uh, Putin's a rational man. He's a KGB agent, and that's really important to remember. He came from the KGB, and now he runs Russia like a mafia. And a part of every mafia is violence. In the last couple of years, he has helped put out the revolution in Belarus as well as in Kazakhstan. He has uh, done everything he could to silence his critics at home by labeling uh, free press as foreign agents. And not only free free press, but non-government organizations as well. One particularly egregious example was uh, him labeling an organization called Memorial uh, for an agent. And the reason why it's particularly egregious is because it's an organization that was established to keep track and uncover Stalin's abuses. Um, and of course, we can't forget Navalny's poisoning, as well as Salisbury and uh, various other violent attacks on protesters within the country that Russian dissidents have endured. And when we look at that all together, I think the motivation becomes very clear. Putin has said that the fall of USSR is a tragedy, has uh, mischaracterized Ukrainian history and has said that Ukraine is not a real nation. And so when taken in all of that context, his motivation, I think, emerges loud and clear. So that leaves me wondering what you, as a Canadian who was born in Ukraine, thinks about the United States and whether Ukraine can depend on continued support from the United States and from other allies. Because it seems to me like There have been many promises made over the years, and yet nobody has stood up to Putin in all of his low-level warfare that he's been engaging in. Do you have any faith that things are going to be different this time? I mean, what hopes do you have? What expectations do you have in terms of the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany, doing anything to bolster the future of Ukraine? So um, let me say this. If the West had stood up for democracy along the way, Mm -hmm. we would not have ended the road here. In the most elementary logistical issue that I can think of is had the West supported the Belarus protests Mm -hmm. um, and the election of a legitimate president, had the West stood up against the torture of protesters in Belarus, Russia would not have been able to put tanks there today. The same tanks that are now threatening Kiev, the same troops that have now entered through Belarus to Ukraine, and the same troops that are threatening the homes of people I love. And this series of failures along the way 
not just in Eastern Europe. We're talking about Ukraine now because, because that's where the escalation is. But globally, there has been a series of failures to support nascent democracies as they're fighting deeply abusive authoritarian regimes has contributed directly to this escalation. And so there is an immediate need to course correct. Yes, we need the mother of all sanctions. Yes, they should sanction Putin himself. Yes, they should provide humanitarian aid. Yes, they have a responsibility to hand out visas like candy to anybody who is Ukrainian in name. And yes, they should prop up our financial sector. And they should do this not just for Ukraine, but for all countries who are fighting for their democracy. Because we see very clearly that authoritarians don't have any problem fighting for authoritarianism. Jane Litvinenko speaking with Professor Siva Vadianathan, director of the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. You're listening to How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. Our recommendation and conversation coming next. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So we're back with a recommendation. Um, Jim, it's yours this week. It's a book called Mercury Rising by Jeff Chessall. And it is a look at the early days of the U.S. manned space program, some of the same ground that was covered in Tom Wolfe's great book, The Right Stuff, really gets into what was going on politically during this very, very intense period in the Cold War. This was right after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Kennedy was a young, untested president. And the Soviets were having great success. They had just launched the first First, in the 1957, they launched Sputnik, the first satellite. And then under when Kennedy was president, they were the first nation to put a man in orbit. So how did the Kennedy administration respond to this? What were the various pressures? I'm learning a lot. And it seems sort of appropriate today, as in some ways, very sadly, we were in a kind of Cold War era all over again. The book is Mercury Rising by Jeff Shessel. Now on to our conversation. Jim, one of the things that struck me about Robert Kagan's analysis was 
his statement that democracy on the global stage is an aberration and is fragile. And I disagree. I don't think it's an aberration. Top-down dictatorships are often weaker than the horizontal power that is typical in democracies that allow for true innovation and creativity and an economic growth that spread much further around the population than is the case in autocracies or in most autocracies. Now, we've taken this for granted in the West, and I think that now is the time to speak up for democracy in this shocking moment that we find ourselves in. First of all, I actually agree with Kagan that too often we assume that democracy is the normal state of affairs. I I think democracy can be fragile. I I think that we shouldn't assume that once countries are democratic, they stay that way forever. It takes work to establish and it takes work to defend. I do agree with you that countries that allow more intellectual freedom and diversity are, are stronger and will do better in the long run. But that doesn't mean that countries that don't have those features can't achieve a lot of power. You know, when we decided to really welcome China into the community of nations and establish lots of free trade deals and stuff. I think we all assume that as they liberalized economically, they would liberalize uh, democratically. And of course, we now know that the opposite happened. Where I disagree with Kagan is I think he's in some ways too pessimistic about the U.S. He, he number of times here he said, well, you know, the American conservatives are allied with fascism around the world. And, and you know, Trump was allied with every dictator. You know, as so often there's grains of truth in that. Now, you know, listeners who followed Kagan's career knew he used to be one of the archetypal neocons, you know, a big advocate for muscular U.S. foreign policy to get involved in other countries, including the Iraq war and others. And then he left the Republican Party when Trump was the candidate for president. And I think, you know, an honorable decision, but he's almost swung really far the other way that he sees sort of Trumpian boogeymen everywhere. But Kagan does raise an interesting question. What would have happened had Trump been reelected? During his four years in office, he did everything he could to disparage and, and really to split the NATO nations from one another. And the thing that worries me um, about the, 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 the nationalist now fringe of the Republican Party, hopefully, is that they are so cynical and nihilistic. Uh, I was listening to Steve Bannon's podcast earlier this week. You may be the only his, one, Richard. Well, it's actually got a lot of listeners, <laughs> yeah. Jim. And it's just poison. They, they're just, you know, so nasty. It doesn't seem like they're the least bit interested in building anything up or being constructive. It's all about being destructive. And I think there is an element of that uh, among the Trumpian right that needs to be resisted. But you're quite right. I mean, right now, uh, Republican voters, Republican elected officials, for the most part, are, are very much on board with this bipartisan response that we've had, uh, thank goodness, to, to what's going on in Ukraine. Let's move from Robert Kagan to Jane Litvinenko, who 
had a really strong criticism of the West for its earlier misjudgment about the threat from Russia when it comes to uh, uh, other efforts to undermine former Soviet bloc nations, including Belarusia, which is now being used uh, for the invasion of Ukraine. That, that really struck home with me, um, this idea that, that, as you've said, we've taken things too much for granted. We've been far too complacent in the face of autocrats. Absolutely. And, you know, it's hard because policy options are limited, but certainly with what happened in Belarus, with uh, the Russians occupying Crimea beginning in 2014 or after the 2014 uprising, as we just discussed on last week's show, with the occupation of Donbass in, in eastern Ukraine, it the responses were very muted. And Russia shot down a commercial airliner. It's almost like nobody even noticed. And I, I don't know. I think that maybe there was a sense that we didn't want to disrupt this. If you assume that the world is moving towards a better, more diplomatic, more open state, if you have that kind of inherent assumption of this teleological kind of, of, of direction of history, then maybe you think, oh, we'll overlook the turbulence because that'll be temporary. Well, maybe it's not temporary. Maybe these things are a sign of things getting worse. So I thought she was absolutely right about our failure to confront earlier incidents of Russian aggression and, and, and disruption of the countries in its orbit. So... That brings us to today. Could we be doing more to to help Ukraine? I mean, military equipment is being delivered, and 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 among the things that the Ukrainians need are air defense and uh, electric or electronic warfare systems, plus fighter jets. And I, I'm struck by the fact that there's a lot of stuff probably going on that we don't know, and maybe we shouldn't know, about exactly how the U.S. and other Western nations are helping Ukraine and what kinds of, of high-tech ways, for instance, um, that, that we, because, because A, we don't want to provoke uh, Russia even further, and B, we, won't, we don't want to uh, tip them off on how much we know. You know, it's really interesting. I mean, I think most observers are really surprised and impressed with how quickly Europe has gotten organized to uh, to get all of this equipment into Ukraine and, and how effectively the Ukrainian forces seem to be using some of this weaponry. We know that there's a huge amount of weaponry flowing in. And, and then as to your point about what's happening behind the scenes, you and I were talking yesterday about what accounts for all of these successes in Ukraine being able to fight back against what's considered, you know, one of the great, you know, air forces of the world. And, and Russia is famous for developing anti-aircraft systems. They actually sell these anti-aircraft systems, very sophisticated surface-to-air missile batteries and other things all over the world. But they don't seem to be working too well in Ukraine. You know, U Ukraine still has planes in the air. They're still flying missions. So maybe there's some, some stuff happening behind the scenes where we or somebody else is with uh, good technical hacking knowledge is, is helping Ukraine uh, disrupt some of Russian command and control and other systems. We don't really know. I'm not sure we want to see all that come out in the open, 
But I'm encouraged that this supposedly overwhelming military seems to be encountering more trouble than it expected. Sadly, what's good news militarily is also terrible news for the Ukrainian civilians, because it just means the Russians will turn more of their firepower on the cities and on the civilians with predictable results. Meanwhile, what what more should we do? I'm wary of too much pressure to do too much more. For example, what do you think about a no-fly zone? I'm against a no-fly zone. I think that definitely risks a much wider war uh, with Russia. The argument, I suppose, uh, in favor of it, that it will help save Ukraine, but it will prevent Russia in future from launching more attacks. But that would be a very risky move. I think a lot of people who support the idea, maybe they think that it's just some sort of rule or something that nobody's allowed to fly. But really, it's more like a military occupation of the air. It is a form of warfare that I think would mean NATO pilots facing off against Russian pilots. That's not a recipe for de-escalation. Let's move finally to energy. And this week, President Biden announced a ban on imports of Russian oil, natural gas and coal, a dramatic step which could lead to more steps being taken against Putin by Europe and other nations. The president also explained honestly that this decision would inevitably mean painful higher prices for energy and also at the gas pump. Biden has been steady and solid in recent days in his response to the Russian invasion. And as you mentioned, Europe has also reacted much more decisively than expected. But on the minus side, Germany's past decisions to shut down all of its nuclear power plants has led Germany to be much more reliant on Russian oil and gas than would have been the case if that decision had not been made. Yeah, it's just... A real scandal, actually. So Germany's had this big project to eliminate fossil fuels from their energy sector by about 2050. They have spent uh, hundreds of billions of euros on wind and solar infrastructure, but it still doesn't work very well. And they're still heavily dependent on coal and gas. They have made progress, but not roughly the same amount of progress reducing CO2 that the U.S. has made. So it's not that impressive. And as they've shut down their nuclear plants, because for some crazy reason, they thought that, you know, to be renewable, you can't have uh, nuclear. They've been importing more and more energy from Russia. And they just shut down three of their last six nuclear plants on January 1st of this year. Right when everyone saw that Putin was moving his troops, that there was a possibly some kind of showdown coming. So they just made themselves that much more vulnerable. It's backfiring both in terms of climate emissions, in terms of the economy and in terms of geopolitics. You don't want to say it's Germany's fault, but is it possible that Putin was emboldened to make this move because he saw that Germany and most of Europe is so dependent on Russia that they would be constrained in how muscular their response would be? I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to say this is how do we fix it? And we'll have a lot more discussion about the implications of of the new era we're in in coming shows. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and this show is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Find out more at DaviesContent.com. 
and thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.